The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. On day six of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, as Vladimir Putin turns up the heat in the region and a 40-mile convoy of military vehicles closes in uh, on Kiev. Overnight, the international community continued to squeeze the Russian economy as the ruble plummeted to a record low against the dollar and even the normally neutral Swiss turned against the oligarchs and promised to freeze all of their assets. Meanwhile, Ukraine President Volodymyr Zelensky signed a formal request applying for membership of the European Union. Union, as they warned that the refugee crisis on the Polish border could involve as many as 7 million people. This morning, we're going to take the temperature in Moscow, in Kiev and in Warsaw, where Boris Johnson was, is about to speak this morning. Uh, Foreign Minister Dominic Raab will tell the United Nations later that Putin has blood on his hands. We'll be talking to former Moscow correspondent for The Times, Mary Dijewski, this morning, amongst a host of experts and reporters on the ground in Ukraine. 0344 499 1000. Coming up, we'll also be speaking to Laura Dodsworth about the importance of telling the truth and making sure that everyone fact-checks information before disseminating it already in this conflict. There have been several instances of misinformation being distributed and promoted around the world on social media. Kevin O'Sullivan is here as well with his take on what's going on. And Donna Harvey will check in with The View from Washington and the White House. Joe Biden, of course, making his State of the Union address later on tonight. 0344 And as Germany looks at restarting a bunch of nuclear power stations to cope with the ever-worsening energy crisis, in the world. We are welcoming businessman Lance Foreman into the studio as he pushes for a new policy on fracking to save households from going bust over the course of the next few months. And as ever, we need to hear from you. As more than 150 former paratroopers head to the battle zone, what are you hearing? What are you seeing? And what are you being told? And still... The big question, what should we be doing in Ukraine that we're not doing? Yesterday, we discovered that, in fact, things were looking quite good from the point of view of Britain's involvement in Ukraine. It seems as though quite a lot of uh, help, aid, arms and all sorts of other things are being given to the resistance fighters in Ukraine. Um, So perhaps that is good enough. Perhaps the policy that we were being critical of last week is actually working. 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Lots to talk about this morning, lots to go uh, on. We've got uh, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, over in Poland. We're expected to hear from him any minute now, really, so we will go to that as soon as uh, he starts speaking. Uh, Obviously, the refugee crisis is growing. It looks as though at least 200,000 people have already fled Kiev and the western part of Ukraine into Poland. It could be as many as 7 million, according to the European Union, this morning. Uh, But our first guest is ready. It's Mary Dijewski. She's a former Moscow correspondent for The Times. She's written about Vladimir Putin many times before. She knows an awful lot about the Russian psyche and indeed what goes on inside the Kremlin. Uh, She's here at the suggestion of Peter Hitchens, who was with us yesterday, of course, as he is every Monday. Let's say a very good morning to Mary Dijewski. Mary, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. I've been fascinating, uh, fascinated to read some of the things you've been writing recently about Vladimir Putin and the kind of man that he is. And I was just saying to Julie Hartley Brewer there that one of the things I picked up was this idea that some of the oligarchs might be the people who put pressure the most on Vladimir Putin coming up because of the fact that they don't wish to be made pariahs of the world. They don't wish to be uh, um, stopped from living the lives that they live. 
Yes, I mean, I absolutely reject that because I don't think that the oligarchs are going to, even if they tried to put pressure on Vladimir Putin, I don't think that's the sort of pressure he listens to. I think he'll have factored in um, the damage to their interests. And I don't think that money is something that, um, it's not something that motivates Putin. Um, the, the principles that he sees are at stake in Ukraine, um, the expansion of NATO, Russia's security, um, Russian history, I think those are far, far more important to Putin than, than money. And as far as the way that it goes, I mean, we were told yesterday the next 24 hours is going to be crucial. I get the sense that we're going to hear that a lot over the next sort of week, that the next 24 hours is going to be crucial. It looks as though um, there's a large column, maybe 40 miles long of a convoy on its way to Kiev. Um, is it your impression that the, uh, the stakes will be raised in the next day or so by Putin? Definitely. Um, and I'm not sure whether that's because, as a lot of people are saying, that um, the Russian operations have been slowed up by Ukrainian resistance. Obviously, there's been very um, heroic actions on the part of Ukraine, and their president has shown himself to be um, <clears throat> a wartime leader that really very few imagined he, he, he would be. Um, that having been said, I do find that maybe some of the some of the coverage and some of the comments over the last um, 24, 48 hours have been um, maybe a bit blind to the fact that Russia has overwhelming military superiority, and the if it wants to take. Kharkov, where there's been fighting, if it wants to take you, Kiev, which is supposed to be surrounded, then it can do that. It'll be ruthless and it'll be, I mean, incredibly nasty and there will be large numbers of casualties. But if that's what Russia has decided, if Russia's decided to meet the cost of that, it's going to happen. And I think it's quite unrealistic to expect that there's an awful lot that Ukraine can do, however heroic. Yes. So what do you think is stopping Vladimir Putin from taking that particular course of action? Why uh, would he be less than brutal and, and less than um, absolutely craven in his wish to take Ukraine by force? Well, I mean... Uh, uh... Unlikely as it sounds, I think he does have half an eye on world opinion. And he started out with what seemed to be quite a clear definition of Russia's objectives in Ukraine. In his long, I mean, very long by um, historical standards, declaration of war on Ukraine, he said there were two objectives. And one of them was the demilitarization of Ukraine. And the other one, which we can talk about or not, as the case maybe it was what he called a denazification. Mm. But if you look at demilitarization, then that is what, Ukraine, what Russia appears to have been, what the Russian forces appear to have been doing in the last four or five days, that they've concentrated on taking out what they see as military and strategic objects. So we're looking at um, airports, ports, power stations. You remember the, um, the, 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 the standoff at Chernobyl, um, the oil refineries, power stations. That's what Russia has been going for. Now, the question is, if it feels that it's not making the progress towards presumably the surrender of 
Ukraine is what it's after. If it feels it's not making progress in limiting itself to military objects, then the risk is that it's it's going to go much further to try and force it so force its ends. Um, we may have seen a bit of that in Kharkiv, where it seems that the regional government headquarters were blown up. But so much is uncertain at the moment that it's very, very hard to predict what will happen mm. in the next 24 hours. It is very difficult, isn't it, to get information out of, of, of war yes. zones in general. But in this particular instance, it seems to be more difficult uh, than most situations. The, 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 the question I suppose I would then have for you, Mary, is if in, indeed the Russians do up the ante and they do um, put more pressure and make more military uh, incisive strikes and they do start to be more brutal in their approach... Surely, because of what we've now seen with the resistance being what it is, that would make the West's reaction even worse, wouldn't it? Well, I mean, we're already listening. I've noticed in the in the last twenty four hours or so, um, the tone of you know public comments on phone ins like like yours mm. um, have been much more um, not. We was never engage in any enterprises foolish as uh, as Iraq or Libya, we must never do that again. The tenor of the discussion has changed to we've got to do something about yeah. that. We can't leave these people to their fate. Right. Um, and if there, if there becomes um, overwhelming public pressure for more action, then it'll be very interesting to see what happens because the government, it seems to me, has been very reluctant to do anything beyond um, supplying weapons to Ukraine, which is now very difficult because the the, the airport deliveries are, are impossible. Um, so getting more weapons in is very difficult, even if Ukrainians were in a position to use them. And then there's the humanitarian aspect of whether you can whether you can somehow get aid into the country, whether you can help people to get out and um, trying to deal with the exodus of people on the borders. Um, but so far, our government and NATO governments generally have been very, very clear that there will be no direct military intervention against Russia. OK, Mary, let me just stop you there because we're expecting Boris Johnson to speak now. If you don't mind staying with us, we'd like to hear from you after this. Uh, thank you very, very much, Matos and Jin Dobre. Again, everybody, it's great to be back uh, here in, in Warsaw. Uh, great to, to, to see you again, Matos, so soon. And it was only a couple of weeks ago that, as you say, that we were here. And uh, I'm afraid to say that the, the tragedy that we predicted then uh, has come to pass. And if anything, uh, it is worse. Uh, than our, our predictions. And we're seeing an unfolding disaster in our, our European continent. And once again, our Polish friends are in the front line, as, as so often in history. And uh, I may say, I think that the Polish government and the Polish people are doing an amazing job, an inspirational job of coping with the humanitarian crisis, the generosity, uh, the welcome that you're giving to uh, people fleeing uh, in fear of their lives from, uh, from Ukraine. And we in the UK uh, stand ready to help you. We have uh, humanitarian supplies, as you know, uh, already coming in. I think two planes of medical supplies have already landed. There's more uh, to come. And we stand ready, uh, clearly, to uh, take uh, Ukrainian refugees in our own country, uh, working with you in, in considerable numbers, as, as we always have done. And and always will. 
It is clear, as you say, Mateus, that, that Vladimir Putin is prepared to use barbaric and indiscriminate tactics against innocent civilians to bomb uh, tower blocks, to send missiles into tower blocks uh, to kill uh, children, as we're seeing in increasing numbers. But I think in this grim war, which is now, what, in its sixth day, he has fatally underestimated two things. And the first is the passionate desire of the Ukrainian people to defend and protect their own country, their belief in their sovereign right to defend themselves. And may I pay tribute, by the way, uh, to the leadership and courage that is being shown by Volodymyr Zelensky. I think he has inspired and mobilized not only his own people, he's inspiring and mobilizing the world in outrage at what is happening in, in Ukraine. And I think that Vladimir Putin has also underestimated the unity and resolve of, of the rest and of the rest of the world. And uh, we will keep up the economic pressure. You're right in what you say, Mateus, about the, the package of economic sanctions that we have put forward. Uh, it is the most powerful ever advanced against Russia, uh, probably one of the most powerful package of sanctions uh, ever advanced against any country in the, in the last a few decades. It is plainly already having a dramatic effect. Uh, we are ready to intensify and to keep going for as long as it takes. And we will continue to, working with you and with other friends and allies, we will continue to support our Ukrainian friends. And we will continue to do that for as long as it takes. And one way or another, I, I, I am absolutely convinced, I'm more convinced than ever, as this hideous conflict progresses, that Putin will fail. And I believe that Putin must fail and that we will succeed in protecting and preserving a sovereign, independent, and democratic Ukraine. That is our, our joint objective. Thank you all very much, Jinkui. Great to see you again. And Mateusz, I'll see you in London next week. Boris Johnson there speaking uh, in Poland. Discussions on Ukraine with his Polish counterpart, uh, Mateusz Morawiecki. Uh, let's go back now, uh, however, uh, to Mary Dijewski, who we were talking to just before that. Mary, uh, Boris doesn't seem to have been listening to you there. He uh, seems to think that the plucky Ukrainians are going to be uh, in the victory um, um, sort of rally uh, rather than what you were suggesting. Um, what, what did you make of what he just said? Well, I thought it was it, it was interesting, um, but it was entirely predictable that there was the emphasis on humanitarian assistance with the refugee crisis in um, in Poland and um, the compliments to Volodymyr Zelensky in Ukraine. Um, but obviously, no more about direct assistance to the Ukrainians and this um, wonderful optimism uh, that Ukraine will prevail. Now, you know, in the long term, in the long sweep of history, then, uh, you know, I've no doubt either Ukraine will prevail. Ukraine will be an independent democratic country again. Um, but what happens in the interim is very, very disturbing because when you look at um, Putin's position now and everything that's been thrown at him, you could say, well, maybe he doesn't have much to lose. Mm. Um, so 
hitherto you can say, well, maybe he's got half an eye on international opinion. But when you look at when you look at the um, the sanctions, the effect that they could have on Russia's economy, he may say, well, things have got so bad they can. There's nothing else that can be done against Russia, so why not go further? And I think that's that, that's a real risk at the moment that yeah. the lever any leverage that the West had over Russia has basically been lost. Yes, I mean, lots of people have said to me over the past week or two that, you know, the West did have its opportunity to welcome Russia into NATO, could have done so, should have done so probably. Uh, and now we are on the wrong side of the fence, if you like. Um, and it may well be that Vladimir Putin doesn't care if Russia is seen as a sort of pariah state, a rogue mm. state, rather like North Korea. Um, but what about the people, for example, who are demonstrating at the moment in Russia, in, in some of the cities there, against Putin? Do you put any store by, by their point of view? Well, I think this is something, too, that's very, very difficult to read. Um, certainly the, um, the the pictures and the reports of street protests in particular, because they're so visible, um, even if the government has has successfully halted street demonstrations in Russia, which it looks, I mean, there are talk of um, 6,000 plus arrests in Russia mm. of people who turned out incredibly bravely in the streets because they knew perfectly well what was likely to happen. But what is very hard to judge is whether, is how far, how deep that protest goes and whether the protest would actually spread and become more, um, how many people are thinking to themselves in Russia, this is something that really we cannot tolerate. This is not being done in our name. Mm. And is it possible that um, for all the efforts of the government to, to spin what's going on in Ukraine in the Russian direction, that people won't actually buy that. Yeah. And there are, certainly, there, there are certainly strands of the population, people plugged into social media, younger people, people who, uh, who are aware of what's, of what's going on in Ukraine and the other side of the story, um, how strong that will be. I mean, my personal view is that, is that um, Russia invading Ukraine could spell the end of Putin's, Putin's presidency. Because if the people around him understand what a gigantic liability this is going to be for Russia, you know, not just in the next few months, but in years to come, they may decide that this is just a liability which is so damaging to Russia, um, economically, morally, um, internationally, that it can't be tolerated. Yeah. So I think I think. It, you can make an argument that Putin's days in charge of Russia are numbered. Mm. But the question is you know, how overt the opposition will be, whether it will come from inside the regime and how long it might take. Yes. And I appreciate you haven't got a lot of time, Mary. Let me just ask you this. In the same way that Putin emerged from the ashes, if you like, of, uh, of, of sort of um, Gorbachev and, and Boris Yeltsin, is there another figure or is there another movement, if you like, within the Kremlin that would be more forward thinking, that would be more kind of westernised, if you like, and would be more likely to represent those Russians who quite like having McDonald's in Moscow and, and quite like having, you know, the ability to buy Nike trainers and all of that? Well, that's that, 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 that's, of course, a, a very big question. And it, you can look at it. There's 
two possible outcomes. Um, at the moment, there's nobody visible um, who would be in a position to take over from Vladimir Putin, um, either from a more pro-Western liberal constituency um, or at all. There are simply no figures around, uh, around Putin, partly because of his preeminence who are, as it were, in the frame to succeed him, mm. if there were something akin to a palace coup. Um, but the other question is, it's not necessarily, as some people have warned, it's not necessarily going to be somebody from the more liberal, more pro-Western um, constituency inside Russia that might take over from Putin. Right. It might be that a mood of such anger and fury against the rest of the world might rise because of the a bit because of the way Russia is now so isolated that you might find somebody coming from the completely different opposite end of the political spectrum and of course that that, that might be even worse than what we've got at mm. the moment yes what a terrifying thought. Mary, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Mary Dijewski, uh, writer and broadcaster, former Moscow correspondent for The Times newspaper, of course, amongst many other uh, positions that she's held over time. She wonders whether, if indeed Vladimir Putin is replaced because of the failures in Ukraine or because of the actions in Ukraine, whether they succeed or not, it could be that somebody more uh, isolationist emerges. It could be that somebody even less friendly to the West emerges. It's a real um, mess, is it not? 0344 499 1000 uh, is the number. Daniel says this, Mike, I feel the plight of Ukrainian people, but I don't want 100,000 plus people to come here. What is that going to solve? It just burdens us with more desperate mouths to feed, uh, to house and to school. Well, that's true, too. Uh, although many people from Ukraine will have relatives here and there's been suggestions that if people were to come here from Ukraine, uh, they would, in fact, already have a sort of infrastructure to join in with, if you like. I don't think there would be a problem with that. But you're quite right, Daniel, as I was saying yesterday, you know, because of all the illegal migrants that are already here and who are c continuing to come illegally every single day by dinghy landing on the south coast of our country, you know, suddenly when we actually have proper refugees from a real war zone, we don't know what to do. Bizarre, isn't it? This is Talk Radio. Listen online. Watch it live on your smart TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Lots of you do want to call me and many of you will get on, of course, 0344-499-1000. Robert just said uh, there that uh, he believes Ukraine is already lost, uh, that Putin will end up running it uh, and it will become once more part of the Russian Federation. I don't necessarily go along with that. I think the Ukrainian people themselves were, would beg to differ. Uh, and I think a lot of the, salt, the, the stories that are being told about people going out to fight on behalf of Ukraine uh, would suggest that that is also uh, going to be helpful to the Ukrainian population as well. Don't forget, you can watch us here uh, on television as well as listening to us on the radio, Apple TV, Rakuten, Samsung TV+, Roku, YouTube... We're also now on Amazon Fire TV as well. Uh, just go to the App Store, download the Talk Radio TV app, or, in fact, just go to talkradio.tv and watch it there. Let's talk now to um, okay, James Sunderland, Conservative MP for Bracknell, former Army officer for 26 years, of course, as well. James, very good morning to you. Mike, good morning. How are you? Very well indeed. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Um, the situation in Ukraine is uh, is sort of uh, balanced very uh, finely, is it not? We've got the Russian advancing army. Uh, we see something like 40 miles long of a convoy on its way to Kiev. Um, 
it's been quite surprising for some people that they haven't quite sort of um, put their uh, jackboot on the throat of Ukraine as of yet. They've been relatively kind of, um, shall we say, forensic in the way that they've approached it. Do you think that's going to change? Well, it's interesting, isn't it, that that the Russian tactics are very manoeuvrist. It's about uh, bursts of power, bursts of firepower, Mm. um, lots of armour proceeding down main supply routes, and and that's clearly failed. Um, The Russians have not taken the key cities, um, and the Ukrainian forces are holding out in spectacular fashion. Uh, So we are almost engaging an attritional situation where for the Russians to make headway now, they need to just reinforce forces, use ever more force, and it becomes ever more unpleasant. Mm, it really does. And as we see to this morning, I think 150 former British paratroopers are heading out there. Uh, there's been a bit of a debate, hasn't there, between members of the government as to whether it's a good idea to go out and volunteer to help, uh, whether it's a good idea to go out and volunteer to fight. I mean, I tend to think that if you know what you're doing, then by all means go and help out. But if you don't, don't. Well, I mean, I agree to a certain extent. I mean, you know, there are 2.2 million veterans in the UK, all of whom feel passionately about the situation in Ukraine right now, as indeed we all do. Um, and if a group of those veterans makes the decision to get on a plane and go out there, and that, that's entirely a matter for mm. them. What, what I would say there, of course, is that uh, you don't require a visa to enter the Ukraine for up to 90 days, so they can legitimately go there. Um, they want to make a difference. But, but what I would say in the balance of fairness is just to say that uh, clearly the UK's position right now is that travelling to Ukraine and to engage in the conflict uh, may amount to offences against UK legislation and could lead to further prosecution, as indeed we saw with um, those travelling to Syria. Yes, indeed. I mean, it doesn't matter what side you're on, in other words, is what you're saying. Well, we'll we'll agree. I mean, I I think there is a clear policy right now that UK forces don't engage directly in the conflict between Ukraine and Russia. That's the right call at this point in time. Uh, And therefore, the Foreign Office, in my view, couldn't be seen to be directly supporting those who may want to travel independently. I think the laws need to apply fairly um, for for all conflicts. And, And that's why in this particular case, I suspect that the FCDO today will be issuing revised guidance on it. Yes, right. And as far as the refugee crisis goes, we, we understand at least 150,000 refugees have gone from Ukraine into Poland already. Um, there's talk from the EU that it could be as many as 7 million. Um, what's your view on what we can do about that here in the UK? Mike, the, um, the issue is much bigger than just the UK. I mean, we are leading the coalition at the moment and doing the best we can. But but let's be clear, I mean, estimates 4 to 7 million leaving Ukraine, the population of Ukraine is 40 to 41 million people. Mm. That's lots of people. This is a big problem. So, so, so the bottom line is I think the UK could do more um, to open safe routes to the UK. We clearly can't take everyone that needs to move. And don't forget the vast majority of those who are leaving Ukraine now don't want to be leaving their country. They want to go home and they want to leave freely and democratically and proudly as Ukrainians. And, and we must offer all the support we can to them. Yes, absolutely right. But the difficulty is, of course, that if Russia does decide to up the ante, as it were, and start kind of uh, pressing more militarily towards Kiev and basically take it by force. We were speaking to uh, our first guest, Mary Dijewski, who's a bit of an expert on Russia. Um, She basically said they can do that if they wish. Would that change our policy towards this uh, dispute? I mean, the Russians have got huge conventional forces. Their conventional forces are, are reinforced by, by heavier weapons. I mean, we could talk about chemical, talk about thermobaric, talk about nuclear. I mean, these, these, are, these are horrific permutations. Uh, what I would say to you is that uh, they haven't taken the key cities so far. 
The logistic lines are cut off. I don't believe they have air superiority currently across Ukraine for reasons I don't fully understand. So this is pretty more difficult for the Russians than they thought. Mm. Putin is rattled. So the bottom line is it depends upon how much the Russians want it. If they want to initiate um, horrible destruction, genocide, if they want to use ever worse weapons, of course they can do it, but at what cost? Mm. And my humble view right now is that the international community needs to ratchet up the pressure on Putin so that he finds it impossible to operate within Russia. Quite. And as far as the um, the Russian army is concerned, I mean, we're hearing stories, um, James, about how many of the people, conscripts particularly, didn't know they were going into a war zone effectively. They might have been told they were doing some kind of exercise or uh, they were involved in some kind of peacekeeping move which wasn't going to be in any way hostile. Um, being a, a man that knows a bit about being in the army, I mean, that must be a bit of an odd feeling for these guys. Yes, it must be awfully confusing for them because their chain of command is telling them one thing, the propaganda machine that the Kremlin is engaged in is really quite powerful. By the same token, they have access to social media on their phones and they're talking to Ukrainians and they're wondering why they're there. I mean, this is a conscript army. These are young people who don't really want to be there. They've got cousins, friends, families in Ukraine. They're fighting their brothers at the moment. And uh, because, you know, because moral superiority is not on their side, they're finding it tough. Mm. Uh, and my heart goes out to all of them involved in this nasty business. Thank you very much indeed. James Sunderland, the Conservative MP for Brack. This is Talk Radio. Fast Talk. Street Talk. Talk Radio. Fighting the good fight with all his might. Providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. That was Boris Johnson answering some quite difficult questions there towards the, the last question there, which was obviously a very emotional one um, from somebody who wanted to know what was being done about all of the oligarchs and all of the man- mansions and all of the expensive cars and all of the bank accounts and all of the monies that seem to be swilling around um, in some ways illegally uh, with very, very wealthy um, Russian um, people who live in either Britain or France or in Italy, other parts of Europe. Laura Dosworth is here. Very good morning to you. Good morning. Sorry for the delay there. Um, welcome. We should talk, I suppose, about Ukraine first of all yeah. and about what is going on there and about your interest in particularly in some of the information and disinformation coming out. Yeah, as I don't understand the history and the geopolitics of Ukraine, you can get far more intelligent commentators uh, on than me talking about it. Um, but what I've been tuning into is I think this really desperate situation in Ukraine needs high quality fact-checked information. And mm. I'd just want to make a plea to people, but also the world's media, to be so careful yeah. about what they share. I think that in general, certainly in this country, people have been kind of red-pilled by COVID. Right. Some of the media coverage was woeful. And there's now this beyond a healthy level of scepticism. I think people are ready to imagine misinformation and conspiracy where there might be yes. none. And so it's more important than ever that real information is shared. And what we've actually seen already is lots of imagery and lots of video being misattributed, sharing like being shared like wildfire yes. on social media. Mm. And it's not true. I mean, even the BBC is guilty of it. I say even you the say BBC. Even the BBC I... <laughs> I assume you mean that with your tongue firmly in your cheek. Right? Yeah, so that I was um I you know, I gave you that one. Yeah, so even the BBC's done it. Now that's been full facted. Yeah. But the BBC showed some footage, supposed footage, of the Russians invading Ukraine and it included a military parade yeah. video. And it's they say it's an error. It's 
I find it hard to understand how it's narrow mm. that, you know, you pick out a bit of video from the archive, you insert it into another video. But anyway, however it happened, it wasn't true. Right. So that shows that, you know, in the busyness in a newsroom, in a war, even the most credible media organisations make mistakes. Well, I think some of them also work with what they're given. And, and there's been at least one case where the Ukrainian government put out a misinformation video about something that was supposed to have happened, which turned out to be a piece of old video. You know, and you can't forget that during wartime, sometimes there is such a thing as propaganda. I mean, that was when it was invented for a war. It wasn't invented for peacetime, but propaganda was invented for war. Yeah. And so if you're on, on the, either the Ukraine or the Russian side, you're going to be putting things out yeah. which might not be entirely truthful. Yeah. Do you know what I, I... I mean, what I'd say about this is when you're in a war, you have to remember that out there there's also an information battlefield. Mm. There are deliberate state actors and there's propaganda, but there's also misinformation that arises because people get very emotive about the coverage. So that's why even credible media organisations don't verify the source properly because it's in a, they're in a rush in the newsroom and, you know, they know it's clickbait. Right. There was an example where Bill shared some video footage that was actually from a video game. Right. A video game. Yes, I mean, that shouldn't be possible, really, should it? You'd think they'd be able to tell the difference. Exactly. I'd like so, to think I could tell the difference. Um, there was a picture, well, there's a vi video, actually, of a young girl confronting a soldier um, in the Ukraine. But it's not the Ukraine. She's Palestinian. Yeah. And it's years old. So this kind of thing doesn't help. I mean, mm. of course, there will be brave young girls in Ukraine. Um, and there may well be brave exchanges. But that wasn't one of them. That's right. actually from Palestine. But then there's another one where it goes around full circle. Um, all of the front pages of the newspapers in this country, it was the 24th or 25th February, showed a woman with blood on her face. Yes. And then it was suggested that that was misinformation. I that don't that think was... that was. I think the previous picture that they showed that proved that it was somebody who had been in a, a, another incident somewhere before, I don't think, one, it was the same person, and also, two, um, I just didn't believe that. And quite often, knowing what I know about newspapers same newspaper will, will pick the same picture because it's the best picture exactly. and that was by far and away the best picture exactly so people said no no this is this is a gas explosion from russia no the photographers confirmed that woman was photographed in the ukraine but it, it goes full circle on the misinformation there's misinformation about misinformation but i think that's because um people are naturally cautious as you said there is propaganda in wartime and I think we've been we've been red pilled by mm. some of the COVID media coverage. So that actually comes down to all of us. Yes. Don't share something on social media unless you know mm. it's true. Right. Don't be tempted but by then that. Of course, and and video. an awful, awful an awful lot of people won't know whether it's true and will never know whether it's true. Then don't share it. Right. You know, don't pass it on if you're not if you're not sure. Um the problem, the problem with the deliberate and the accidental uh, propaganda that you get in wartime is it creates a lot of jingoism, emotionalism. And when the coverage is very emotive, and that, let's be honest, the coverage here has been very emotive mm. so far, that affects your reasoning. And then it becomes personal and it, become, it can become nasty. So anybody that's asking questions at the moment is a Putin cheerleader. Yeah. Well, there's no need to create those kinds of divisions. No. I think everyone's looking to triangulate opinions and understand what's going on. And the other thing is, it leads. And again, to many quite... people are coming out with what they think is the truth, which is you know their truth, and they already know more than anybody else what the situation is. I mean, I get lots of people saying, "Why are you not uh, giving both sides of the argument?" Well, the two sides of the argument are this: uh, there is only one fact. The fact is, Russia invaded Ukraine. That's a fact. Whether or not you agree with it is not the issue. Whether or not you think it was justified is not the issue. The fact is that they did it. 
I agree. That's what I say. I don't have the political science background. I haven't been an international journalist of long standing. I don't know the geopolitical background. But Russians and Russia's an aggressor. It's invaded. People are displaced from their homes. There's war going on. Those are the facts. Yeah. Understanding the coverage gets a little bit harder. But the other thing with this very emotive coverage is, is there any situations where you had you had Sir Roger Gale here in the studio saying that Russians should be expelled mm. from Britain? Well, I think this is a really ridiculous suggestion. It is. The idea that I think you even know, he now realises it was a ridiculous suggestion. It, you know, basically a handful of ordinary Russians being sent back to Russia isn't going to change Putin's mind. And not only that, it would undermine our own moral authority. And it's a cruel thing to do. It's a cruel thing to suggest that ordinary Russian people who've chosen to live here are in any way responsible for either what's happened or be able to change the course of events by going back. Mm. So that was that's not a great suggestion. Now, I don't know what you're going to think of this, but I, I'm not a fan of the EU saying that they're going to ban RT and Sputnik. No, I'm not either. We are as well. Boris Johnson actually was, was, was also on that same side of the coin when it was suggested by Sakia Starmer last week that it should be done. And he said, well, that's the kind of thing Russia does. That's not what we do. Well, thank you, Boris Johnson. And... No surprise from Keir Starmer. Mm. You see, I, I mean, I've been invited to give um, a number of interviews before on RT and Sputnik, and I haven't. That There's no right or wrong thing to do, but it hasn't sat quite well with no. me. The fact is, in, in Russia, as a journalist, you could be imprisoned or yeah. killed. You know, I don't, I don't really want to give interviews to their state broadcaster, but I don't think they should be shut down. Right. There's a few reasons. First of all, again, it would undermine our moral authority. If you believe in free speech, you shouldn't quell it. If you say no to one station, which station is next? Who's mm. going to be the arbiter and yeah. what's, what's acceptable? Well, as some a station that was taken off of YouTube for some nebulous reason that they decided we'd somehow, you know, transgress, transgress some unwritten mm. law or other, you know, I'm not in favour of any of that. No. And you know what? I actually want to see what RT is saying. Mm. Because I'll take it with a healthy pinch of salt. Now, RT got the story right about the signal guards who weren't killed. Uh -huh. They surrendered. Right. Sometimes seeing the other side is useful. Right. But also, you know, if we say no RT, will Russia say no EU stations in Russia? Why should Russian people mm. be deprived of that? The best thing is to have all the free speech and the media out there and let people decide yes. for themselves. Also, we are now in a technological era where you can't really ban anything because somebody will find a way of watching it. VPNs. Stay, stay where we are, uh, stay where we are, in fact, and where you are, uh, and where everybody else is, because uh, everybody else is watching Talk Radio right now. It's the only place to be. Uh, Laura Dodsworth is here. We'll be back with more after this. Talk Radio. It's not all bad, you. Beware of sharp comments. I listen to Talk Radio. A national treasure. Plain talking radio. 23 and a half hours a day. Talk Radio. The home of common sense. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Laura Dodsworth is here. We've been talking about Ukraine. Obviously, Boris Johnson was just speaking in Warsaw there uh, about the situation, uh, saying that he believes very much that uh, Ukraine will emerge uh, victorious. But uh, of all of the bad messaging that's been going on about the war uh, and about whether the Russians are right or the Ukrainians are right, Right in the midst of all of that, up pops Matt Hancock. With a love story. With a love story. A romance. I mean, it's a shame we can't play the theme from Love Story. What was it? Um, I think we should be playing West Side Story because Matt Hancock broke the rules. Not the rules. Sorry, his guidance. Because he fell in love. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely in love. So he's not a lawbreaker. No. Because it wasn't the law. No. It was guidance. Right. But he is a hypocrite. Well, he have certainly we, is at the very least. Have we got least. a clip of his really gushy, mawkish bit? I think we may have. Um. I broke the rules, you know, I fess up. I broke um, the, uh, the, the guidance. Um, 
And, you know, there were only two people responsible for this. Um, and, and, and ultimately that's why I resigned. I, I took responsibility for my decision and I resigned. I actually don't miss the job as much as I expected, right? I'm, I actually, I, I'm really enjoying the freedom of being on the back benches on the professional side. And, um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely, you know, um, I'm absolutely in love with Gina and that, that helps a bit. Oh, oh did you see the, the eyebrows can't. after the end, oh. though, when he goes with the eyebrows? I just can't take him off. Look, this is not... What a weirdo. Ra- this is not Romeo and Juliet. This is not two star-crossed lovers meeting up against all the odds right. during a pandemic also, why does he under think anybody... a CCTV camera. Right, but why does he think anyone cares or is interested in his crappy life and his useless, you know, inability to stay married? Who I cares? Don't, I don't know. It's Look, the thing is... It, it... It's not a romance story. It's it's adultery. It's tawdry. It is tawdry. He got caught. He broke the guidance slash rules that he proposed and millions had to suffer under. And I can't actually believe he thinks this is good for his yeah. public image at this stage. He doesn't actually get at all how to turn his he public image around. He should go very, very yes. quiet for a long time. And he time. hasn't done any of that because he keeps popping up, doesn't he? He keeps kind of re-emerging like some kind of, well, I don't want to say what, but you know what I mean. I don't. We're emerging like a boil? No, something that floats to the top. Got it. Got Um, it. Something that would float to the top of a cold river like the one he swam in recently is one of his image image boosting efforts. Well, we've had the I got the job with the UN, aren't I great, right? Except he didn't. didn't. Um, didn't. He's been surfing in Cornwall, sort of showing off his manly chest. If you remember that one. My eyes. My eyes. Today he's wearing a black polo neck like he's the man from Milk Tray. Oi, that was, that I was going to say that. He thinks he's the Milk Tray man, doesn't I he? Mean, because that's the right sort of romantic look for a star-crossed lover yeah. who couldn't help breaking the rules. The rules that he made millions of other people yeah. live under. Uh, he actually told people to only, you know, to stay in their established mm. relationships. He basically took romance, dating and casual sex off the table mm. While he was doing it under yeah. a CCTV camera, and I'm not saying he was doing casual sex. He well, he was might doing have been something. He might have been. Let's not even try. Let's not even remember what he was doing. But the other thing is, he can't do an apology when he quit. Well, he clearly doesn't think he did anything wrong. He's going, "I fess up." That was his move, right? I fess up. Oh, big deal. You know, why don't you prosecute yourself and fine yourself ten grand? Because he didn't break the law. I see. Yes, but when he quit, he talked about what, what an a great absolute job Muppet. he'd done. And at this stage, he's talking about how he couldn't help it because he was in love. But being in love isn't a defence for breaking I've the guidance. I've found that uh, it doesn't get you very far in any situation, that saying, I did it because I was in love. No, but worst of all for him, this kind of mawkishness and the hypocrisy that he's putting on display for the world isn't going to turn his image around. And I know it could seem, for some people right now, it might, might seem flippant to be, you know, throwing some darts at Matt Hancock, but you can't forget what no. he was responsible for doing No, listen, I've made a big thing of saying we will not let them forget what they did. We will mm. not move on. We will not stop until we yeah. find out. I want to still see Chris Whitty sitting in a chair being questioned by somebody with a brain as to why he said what he said, when he said it, and what he was trying to do. Because I'm not happy, still, with what went on. Well, you know, it's really important that as the tempo changes in the media, it, you know, COVID is is fairly behind us, you know, it's on its way to becoming endemic. Yes. We're in a nice, uneasy detente with herd immunity. We're getting there. The crisis has receded yes. anyway. And now we're moving into new stories, you know, and, and we've got this hideous situation in the Ukraine. People's 
people are moving on, but there are some things you mustn't move on from. Yesterday, I gave evidence to an all-party parliamentary group on the pandemic response. Mm. And I was talking about things that I'd learned and uncovered when I was writing my book, State of Fear. And Professor Mark Antonio Spada was there and he was talking about COVID anxiety syndrome. Now, he's done some research into levels of anxiety and depression in this country and other countries. And I wasn't surprised at all to hear that Britain has had the highest levels of moderate to severe anxiety and depression mm. as a result of the pandemic and our response to it. Because he talks about this multiplier effect. We didn't just have the threat of a pandemic. We also had lockdown, which made people isolated. Mm. And then we also had persistent and exaggerated appeals to fear and the sense of threat being mm. escalated. And we've really suffered for that in this country. And he says we're going to see the results of that for 15 to 20 years to come in people who can't drop overly anxious symptoms and in young people whose mental health has been damaged. And that's why it's important even while we're moving on with life, not to let go of certain aspects of this pandemic management mm. because we're going to live with them for decades and we have to make sure it never And there are still again. people out there, I hear them on talk radio, not on my show, thankfully, who go banging on, it's not over, you know. It's not safe to be um, going out without a mask on. It's still there. It's not something that you should forget about. There are still doctors, medical people saying that. Absolute mor morons, I'm afraid, in my view, because mm. that's not what they should be saying. No, we should be helping people to move on, but also, um, you know, we've got to challenge this idea that masks ever kept people safe. They didn't. I mean, at, at the same time um, as we're moving on, it means I think that there is a bit more honesty and receptiveness about yeah. some aspects. So this has been some more coverage again about how the initial Neil Ferguson Imperial modelling was based on inadequate data. Mm. And that was really one of the big drivers for lockdown and behind the whole fear campaign. Yeah. So there's some aspects of this that we can't let let go, unfortunately. We have to keep banging the drum yes, no, to do. make sure that we protect people from a pandemic response like that ever again. Yeah, And so in some ways, you know, thanks to Matt Hancock for bringing up the uh, love thing, because now we can remember what an absolutely hor horrific health secretary he was. So that will help us remember. We're, we're not going to forget Matt Hancock in a hurry, unfortunately. It's ingrained on the back of the exactly. retina. I yes. can see the picture now. <laughs> Laura, great to see you. Thank you very much indeed. Um, we will be back uh, with some more great guests here on Talk Radio After the News. Edgy talk, lame talk, unrivaled talk, talk radio. The only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We've been following what's going on in uh, Brussels today. They've just heard from uh, President uh, Zelensky over in Ukraine. Uh, he's talking about being under attack from Russian cruise missiles. The Russians are supposedly uh, advancing on Kiev uh, with a 25-mile-long convoy of military vehicles. Nobody's quite sure what they plan to do once they get there, whether they will, in fact, uh, increase the military presence that they have currently, or whether they will start targeting more civilian uh, outposts, whether they'll stick to current, currently what they've been doing, which is so-called attacking military outposts only. We shall see. Uh, we've got all sorts of uh, reflections from Germany, from Moscow. Uh, we'll go over to America and get uh, from LaDonna Harvey what's happening tonight with Joe Biden and his State of the Union address. He doesn't seem to be saying terribly much about Ukraine at the moment. Coming up in this hour, Lance Foreman has joined us, the former MEP uh, and businessman, of course. He's got an idea for how we can make our energy cheaper. Uh, he's got a petition currently going to start fracking. We've heard from Germany this morning that they're going to possibly reopen 
some coal mines and maybe even reopen some nuclear plants as well because they are so dependent on the gas that comes from Russia that they need to find an alternative. 0344 499 1000 is the number. We'll bring you up to date, of course, with anybody as well who's going over to Ukraine to join the fight uh, to keep Ukraine free, uh, which is what they're asking for everybody to do. Uh, We'll take more of your calls. We'll listen to what you have to say. Many of you uh, already saying, well, of course, we should be able to welcome as many refugees in here as we possibly can from Ukraine. But we must stop all of the others who are coming, supposedly from war-torn countries, somewhere near northern France. Doesn't really make much sense, does it? You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Time to say a very good afternoon to Mr Lance Foreman. How nice to see you. Always a pleasure, Mike. Always a pleasure to see you. I know you think you've been in the old studio, but I don't think you've been in this one before. So uh, so welcome. Thank you. Um, now, we wouldn't normally be talking about fracking with any more than just a sort of a casual suggestion that it might be a quite a good idea. Whereas now we find ourselves in this kind of energy crisis where prices are going through the roof. You've got obviously massive um, bills to pay in your business, not, not only in your, in your household situation. But tell us about this petition that you've got going on. Well, um, this month, I, I keep saying next month, but it's actually this month because it's the 1st of March It's now today. the 1st of March. It's St David's Day, actually. I should have mentioned that earlier. So happy St well, David's Day to everybody in Wales. Absolutely. Um, and um, this month, uh, the government have instructed um, the two um, shale exploitation wells, the fracking wells, um, in the north of England, to be concreted up. Mm. Um, so th- there are two wells they're not fracking at the moment uh, or they're not extracting the gas at the moment but the government instructed uh, for these wells to be concreted up which is completely and utterly senseless mm. in, even if there's a tiny hope that we can get fracking back again um, and we can talk about that and yeah. why we should um, it would be completely idiotic to concrete them up now yeah. because the biggest cost involved in doing all of this is digging the well in the mm. first place. So let's just hold fire on that. Um, Car 26, run by Lois Perry, yeah. um, which was launched uh, last October around the time of COP26, yes. um, put out a, um, um, a YouGov poll to see whether people want a referendum on net zero. Yeah. And um, the majority, 58%, said they did. Even young people, yeah. even remote Remainers, Brexters, everybody said they wanted to have this referendum. Um, but, the, you know, what they're now saying is that we need to we need to stop this uh, concreting of the wells. Mm. We need to allow fracking, at least have a discussion about it. Mm. And it is urgent. You know, we, we as a country and Europe, indeed, should hold its head in shame about the reliance on Russian gas and oil. Yeah. You know, we are funding... Putin's war. Exactly. This is uh, this is madness. So well, this is the thing. I mean, all yeah. this all this stuff. I mean, we're just seeing a story breaking now that the EU have basically ordered um, a sort of a freezing of assets for all the oligarchs and all the people associated with Vladimir Putin. What they should do is stop giving him money for the gas, shouldn't they? We're still doing it. You know, we're still we. As I say, we are funding the war. We yeah. are paying for the oil and gas, which is enabling Putin to do this. If we weren't reliant on Putin's gas at all. We wouldn't be in this awful situation now, which, you know, who knows how it might escalate. Hopefully, you know, God willing, that won't happen. But we need to get on with this with real urgency. Mm. In Britain, we could be completely self-sufficient. At the moment, we do import gas. Europe obviously imports a huge amount of 40% of its gas from Mm. from Russia. But we have 
shale gas reserves under the UK, which even if we release 10% of them, could last us for 30 to 50 years. The government were planning to do fracking back in 2013. They put out this paper saying, this is a brilliant idea. Boris was behind it. You know, the government were behind this thing, exactly the same way as they're doing in the USA. And um, it's over the last probably eight or nine years, you've had all these environmentalists sort of coming up with, uh, you know, every reason under the sun not to do it. They've been coming up with these completely false claims. The Advertising Standards Authority, in fact, challenged them and won. Uh, But of course, by that stage, it was too late because, you know, all these all these things take time. But if you look at what's going on in America, they they have... I think they've had, they're almost up to about two million fracking wells right. across the USA. They pay a sixth of the price for their electricity. You know, here, the average family in the UK was paying £1,200. It's going up to £2,000 now. Yeah. People are talking about £3,000 a year for it's our electricity. It? In America, if we, if we paid the same rate as them, it would be £300, not right. £3,000. Right. We can do this. Well, we can. But as you say, a lot of the reasoning why we aren't doing it and haven't done it with the way that the government wanted to do it in 2013 is because of this green agenda, you know, which hasn't been mentioned much by Boris Johnson lately. Ever since he found himself in the uh, in the deep doo-doo, he doesn't really mention COP26 anymore. He doesn't really talk about the green agenda. He doesn't talk about heat pumps. He doesn't talk about, you know, how we should be changing everything over to electricity. You know, the, the green agenda is fine in isolation, but you can't look at it in isolation what we've just learnt in the last few weeks or months is that there are other very important considerations. Yeah. Two of the most important ones are energy independence mm. for self-defence. Yeah. You know, you, you, you can't rely on Russia for your energy. You have to be independent as a nation. So that's absolutely crucial. So you have to balance that against the needs of environmentalism. And the second thing is the cost why, you know, the whole idea of environmentalism is to save the planet for our great-grandchildren. But if our children can't afford to live on this planet because you've impoverished yes. them with ridiculous costs for their yeah. energy, what is the point? And also, there is this kind of sickness abroad, isn't there? And when I say abroad, I just mean out there. Roger Gale uh, even was infested by it when he was on uh, somebody's show here at Tool Radio a few weeks ago. And he said, well, we don't want the next generation of children, my grandchildren, to be the first to die from something other than old age, as if they've actually bought into this idea that the earth is actually going to expire sometime within the near future. I mean, it's madness. Yeah, but e- look, e- even if you believe in all the net zero stuff, I don't. And even if, well, e- but even, even if you did, it still makes sense to extract our shale gas because you're going to have to be using gas from elsewhere. And actually using it from elsewhere is a lot less green than literally yeah. taking it straight out of your ground and putting it into your grid. Right. I don't think, I mean, I look... I, the reason I got involved in this, um, probably about last October, um, was because my own bills in my in my business. I remember you just doubled me that your bill had gone up to by something like one hundred and fifty thousand pounds. Yeah, well, actually, with with the you know, if you compare it like for like, it's gone up from two hundred thousand pounds a year to four hundred thousand pounds a year. That's a hell of a lot of extra That's fish bonkers. to sell. It's completely. Well, bonkers. I was going to say. I mean, do you have to put the prices? We had to put up? our prices up. Right. So so consumers, you know, taxpayers. And not only finding their own energy bills going up, mm. but everything they're buying, all their food prices are going to be going up, all their consumables are going to be going up because everybody has to yeah. use energy in their production. So everybody is going to face the double whammy of these sort of price increases. There's going to be, you know, the people obviously be campaigning for higher wages. You'll have an inflation spiral. None of this needs to happen. 
we can frack. And I, I think, you know, people hear the word fracking, they don't really know what it means. We've actually been fracking in the UK for about 50 years. Mm. You know, all you're essentially doing is you're drilling this huge well, it goes down about two miles. Yeah. Um, and then when you get to the bottom of the well, the, 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 the drilling sort of goes out horizontally above these sort of shale rocks. Right. And in the rocks, there are gas. There's shale gas. Once the, you know, so the fracking. Fire water yeah, they it, fire really. water at it for about two or three days yeah. to crack it, to release the gas. Right. And then they take out the drill. You know, the drills are there for a few weeks. I mean, they're not there for years. Um, so each, you know, the, the expiration takes a little bit of time. But the drilling and the, you know, the, these Drilling shafts aren't massive. There's, they're not as tall as a, as a wind turbine. Mm. Uh, and then they take them away. And then once the, ga- the gas sort of bubbles to the surface, like bubbles in a bottle of you know fizz, right. uh, it sort of bubbles, bubbles to the surface. And then they cap it off and they put this little pipe over the top, no bigger than a parking meter. Uh, and then you have gas for the next 10 to 20 years. Amazing. You know, it's, it, it is amazing. It's a resource. It's treasure. It's literally yeah. treasure under our feet. And we're sort of saying, nah, let's just leave it there. Because most people belief in 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 what happens in fracking is that is it causes earthquakes because you've got this constant kind of you know um annoyance if you like of of uh, of, of disturbing of the earth which isn't the case is it well they, they've put so many safety measures on fracking now uh and and this is one of the problems that uh you know the the, the level of fracking um the level of uh, um the effect on on the sort of Richter scale mm. in terms of uh, fracking has to be pretty much about the same as the uh, the the, uh, the the movement you get from sort of sitting down on a yes. chair. Well, we get, uh, I mean, we get know, earthquakes it, in this country all the time. It's just they're not. We're very... not talking about earthquakes here. You know, there have been, as I say, almost two million fracks across the USA. Yeah, there have not been any problems. Right. There, there is, no, there really isn't an issue here. There's no evidence of it. Um, you know, on a scale that's going to be in any scale damaging. Mm. And we have these other issues. We have to, you know, and, and the other thing is we can do this pretty urgently. You know, mm. people talk about other forms of energy, you know, um, re- renewables, fantastic, but we can't store them. And they're very expensive because they're subsidised. Maybe in 20 years' time. When the technology's yeah. there, great. If we can get the wind to give us free energy, well, fantastic. But you know, weekend before last, when I was coming back from the US, when there was all these storms, it was like three storms one after another, people were kind of jokingly saying on Twitter, well, of course, now we'll have enough uh, energy for the rest of the, the rest of the year. because these You can't winds, store it, though. But you can't store you it. You can't store it so, yet. I mean, maybe in time we'll be able to, but mm. at the moment we can't. They're talking about nuclear you're still you're still 10, 10 years you know away from having that on stream mm. and nuclear might be fine for your electricity it's not that great for for heating your home mm. the great thing about gas is that you can burn it and you've got you know you, for cooking and heating it's yeah. the most efficient it's the greenest actually yes. it's the, it's the greenest method and if we've got it here under our feet that's much greener than transporting mm. it, you know, liquefying it and transporting it from other parts of the world. So we, we need to get on with this urgently. W- one of the reasons why it takes a little bit of time is because there are a lot of planning restrictions and you've got to get through all of those to be able to start doing your sort of... Because uh, it's the old not-in-my-backyard time, it, isn't it? Exactly. So there's Nobody a lot of planning. Nobody wants a fracking well at the end of their garden. But you know what they need to do, Mike? And I, I know this from personal experience. Mm. They should do exactly what they did um, with the Olympics. There was a there was a piece of legislation called the Olympic Act, mm. which basically allow you to cut through pretty much any piece of legislation to make sure the Olympics happen on time. Because you know the 2012 games couldn't happen in 2013, right. so you you could cut through any piece of planning legislation to make sure this happens. We are in an emergency here. There is war it really in Europe. Is. It's a proper this emergency. is a real serious emergency. Not a climate emergency. Absolutely not. This is a real emergency. Yeah. Um, you know, there's war in Europe. 
Who knows where that might lead? Who knows where that might escalate? We've got a cost of living emergency, mm. which people are only just starting to see now as the bills start filtering yeah. through. And we can do this. We, we need to do it. We should do it urgently. And people need to get on and sign that petition. Yes. And it's very easy to find. Uh, just go onto Google and look fracking ba- fracking ban well. petition uh-huh. you've retweeted it fracking ban petition out it'll pop it was just launched about a week ago it's got 4,000 signatures so far we need 100,000 signatures right. on this petition to get it discussed but in parliament exactly yeah. and uh, you know there are MPs I mean Steve Baker um, asked a question about this uh, I saw last that, week actually, yeah. and Boris came back and he sort of he was a bit nonchalant about the whole thing and sort of saying, well, the Lithuanians and the Baltic states need to get on with renewables. That is not a, it's not a serious well, he's answer. he's got to answer to Mrs Johnson when he gets home, so he's well, not allowed to say anything about <laughs> fracking might be quite good for the country because she'll give him a clip round the ear. I think even, you know, even she has to see sense with what's going on. Now, the Germans, I mean, you know, the Germans, very strong Green Party, even the Germans now are saying they're going to go, go back, back to, to nuclear, go back to coal. You know, we are in a very different world now mm. than we were a few weeks ago. Yes. Um, well, it's well, the same world, but be, people are realising Well, it, it can now. only be a matter of time, can't it, before Vladimir Putin decides to retaliate against all of these sanctions by saying, well, I'll tell you what, we'll just put the price of gas up to whatever we want it to be. This is their biggest source of income. Mm. You know, it's all very well us saying we're going to, uh, you know, sanction his oligarchs and so on. We are feeding this war by buying his fuel at the moment. Um, and that needs to stop. And it really needs to stop right away. Mm. We can get on with this. We need to get on with this for a safer world and and an affordable world. Yeah. Well, have have a listen to this. I don't know whether you saw this tweet yesterday from Gary Lineker, um, who put out a tweet above a climate change story from the BBC. I know these are scary times, he says, for other reasons. But for crying out loud, we need to act now on climate change to avoid catastrophe. Spectacularly off the radar, really, isn't it? I mean, what can you say? I mean, I, I just don't know how to respond to these things because they're, they're just living on a completely different mm. planet to me. Yeah. You know, it's, yes. He also does happen to drive um, a very, very expensive and rather gas-guzzling car, uh, which is uh, which goes very fast and is made by a German company. Well... Can't say too much. It's got four <laughs> exhausts. It's, um, you know, there is a lot of hypocr- hypocrisy in this too. Yes. You know, and, 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 you know, coming back to all the fracking stuff, I think the thing that people miss, you know, m- so much of this anti-fracking stuff has been funded by the Russians. You know, the, you know our, Russia Today, you know, the TV show, mm. they've been sort of talking about how damaging fracking would be. Gazprom, they've been saying, wonder why Gazprom are saying the Brits shouldn't frack because it mm. could be dangerous. Wonder, why do you think that might yeah, be? Yeah, it's interesting, that's, that, that's, isn't it? Yeah, strange. Might, but that would be the next question. I'm going to ask you that. We're going to take a little break. We're with Lance Foreman. He wants us to start fracking. I agree with him. It is the way forward. Uh, there's a question on the screen there. Is fracking the way forward? Yes. Just take the question mark off. I didn't ask for that. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Shoot your shot. Danger. Slippery people. Uncomplicated life rubric for hungry thought thinkers. Rock the House of Commons. It's Talk Radio. The home of common sense. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We're going to go live to Ukraine coming up in a little while, but Lance Foreman is here with us talking about fracking. You should also... um, Tell us about your sort of connection to Ukraine, because you are, uh, or your family, have got well, connections there, right? Indeed. My, my great-grandfather, uh, the guy who started uh, 
our business foreman came from Odessa. Really? Um, so he was, uh, yeah, he, he was fleeing the pogroms mm. uh, back in the late 19th century and settled in East London, started a smoked salmon business. There you go. There They're you still go. going so, strong. Yeah, so refugees, you know, can, well, I've told can you add before, value. I've told you before, my son was very impressed at school when he was, when your name came up in a geography lesson, uh, all about the Olympics and the Olympic Park and what happened when London 2012 was going and you had to sort of move half a mile down the road yeah well i, I think i became ken livingston's worst nightmare at the time <laughs> he thought there, there was some good, sort of uh, some little good... fish smoker down the yeah. east end and uh, no we, we put up a fight and in fact we represented all 350 businesses that got booted out of the olympic park right. and uh, uh that was that was you know our own little challenge and of, is that part of the world time. thriving now because i know that you've got westfield there and you've got the sort of olympic park around it does it? I mean, has it been sort of regenerated, if you like that area? Yeah, it's 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 there's there's so much construction going on. You know, as I look out my window, yeah. and uh, I, you know, you just look out and think, well, that building wasn't there last week. Well, this week is the and, bit uh, I find quite puzzling. You know, I talked to Richard Tice quite a bit about this, and all about how you know commercial property in London is half empty. I mean, I know probably some people are now returning to work, but it's it, I, I find it quite puzzling that all these buildings are going up, and yet. People are sort of being told to work from home, or are saying that they probably will work from home more than they ever did. But the yeah, commercial property business that. doesn't seem to be f be fading into oblivion. Um, no, I mean there's there's a there's a lot going on. A lot of the buildings being built on the Stratford site are for sort of you know government or NGO type sort right. of uh, organisations, well, universities, of well, and museums, rather than private uh, mm. private operators. But yeah, th there's a lot of you know there's a lot of residential being built too. But um, yeah, it's uh, you know whether whether the Olympics was the catalyst or not, you know who knows. Who but, can uh, say? Going back to the fracking uh, argument, who would be running those companies? Would it be sort of existing energy companies? Would you start, or would you? I mean, I, heaven forbid that you would say we nationalise it, but I mean, wouldn't be such a bad idea given what's happening at the moment. Um, well, that's that is an interesting question, be, and it's an interesting question because people sort of say that you know even if we did frack. You know, it's not going to make a dent in the energy price. Mm. And that's just complete nonsense. Yeah. You know, you, you look to America where they frack. There's a huge amount of competition in the fracking industry. And what does competition do? It forces people to try and lower their prices mm. to win the business. So in America, they pay a sixth of the price for their energy that, that we do over here. One of the big differences over here is that the, the government, the crown, own the rights to any gas under our land. Yeah. And so the government could, you know, it could charge uh, a fee, a some kind of royalty that any operator has to pay. Or it could say it could put out a tender basically saying that we are offering a fixed margin mm. uh, to whoever wants to uh, whoever wants to extract the shale gas. And that's it. We have the right to be able to set the prices ourselves as a nation. Mm. You know, it's all very well to say, yeah, you you know, you just go to the, the normal BPs of this world or Quadrilla is the only company around at the moment that's yeah. doing it. But we set the rules here. Mm. And, uh, but you'd you know, want you, it to be a homegrown company, ideally, wouldn't you? Well, absolutely, you want it to be a homegrown. But the, the key thing is that the, you know, the, the resource, the value in that resource comes back to British citizens, to British taxpayers. And there's absolutely no reason why it shouldn't do, mm. as it does in the USA. You know, we can do this. We don't just have to, you know, make these huge international sort of, uh, you know, uh, oil and gas companies uh, very rich and no. just hope we get something as shareholders. We, you know, we we set the rules yes. so the, the British taxpayer can benefit, the British, you know, the, the exchequer can benefit. Because that's the other thing that people were really, really annoyed about when they saw the amount of money in profits that BP and Shell were making most recently when they issued their figures. Billions and billions of Well, they pounds. did, but then they lost billions the previous year. And in fact, I think BP is now, because it's pulling out of, 
Russia. Yeah. It's going to be, I think it's writing off something like about 25 billion. Well, BP is a very bizarre year. company nowadays. First of all, they changed the name to Beyond Petroleum. Now they're saying they're not going to explore for oil and gas anymore. And you're kind of going, well, what are you doing then? You're going to open a shop? Well, this is, you know. I think this is one of the fears, actually, is that. The, the, the whole environmental uh, net zero lobby is basically being stitched up by these huge glo- global multinationals. Yeah. And it's the little guys that are getting shafted. Mm. And and that that is one of the fears. And, you know, you can understand how that can happen. And these big, you know, big companies lobbying, you know, these sort of multi, you know, the EU and, uh, and national governments to, to have the rights to do all this stuff. And governments buying into it because... You can control people much yes. better. We've learned all that from COVID. Yeah. You know, you could if somebody drives an electric car, you can know exactly where they're going. Yeah. You, you can turn off their car remotely if you want to and yeah. stop them driving. Uh. So government has a lot more control with all this uh, modern sort of electric uh, electric style yes. uh, energy. Uh, so that's why you know I think that uh, you know like it or lump it. That's why I think governments do like it unless they're. You know, libertarian like you and me. Well, Sensible unfortunately, people. we're not in government. We should be, and then everyone will have a much happier <laughs> life, I'm sure. But listen, Lance, great to see you. And uh, so go sign that petition. Uh, I'll retweet it out again. Lance will retweet it out. Go and find it uh, on Google as well. Fracking, uh, I think, is the way forward. It's got to be, hasn't it? Uh, this is Talk Radio. Listen on DAB+. Plus. Watch it live on your smart TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. This is, of course, the home of common sense. It is also the home of free speech as well. Uh, so if you want to get going and get your views heard, this is where you do it. Ian Collins coming up with the, uh, the show after me at one o'clock. Uh, and then, of course, it's Christo uh, who's in for Jeremy Carl from four. Uh, and then it's Kevin O'Sullivan. And then it's James Wales. It's all going on. We're going to go now live, though, uh, over to Chernitsvi uh, in Ukraine, uh, where Alexander Pavlichenko, a human rights activist, is currently... Alexander, a very good uh, afternoon to you. Pleased to meet you. Thank you very yeah, much. Radio. Thank, thank you very much for joining us. Where, where exactly in Ukraine are you? Uh, now I'm exactly in Chernitsi, but I'm from Kiev, and my organization, Ukrainian Health and Human Rights Union, uh, I'm director of our organization, uh, was based in Ukraine, and we have uh, our um, branches in all regions of Ukraine. So okay. we get information from the field from uh, all regions and places in Ukraine. Ah, okay, because we heard President Zelensky just before this on uh, um, a call to the European Union saying that there have been some cruise missile strikes in Kiev. Um, can you tell us anything about that? Yeah, the uh, uh, will to join the European Union was expressed uh, since uh, last uh, uh, eight years, and uh, it was uh, declined by the EU structures. And uh, only uh, the crucial uh, and tragic, uh, tragic situation with the uh, war uh, started by Russia uh, now uh, allowed it to consider this uh, apply uh, sent uh, again Ukraine uh, to the European institutions. And uh, I, I consider it as a, a good chance for both sides, uh, for EU and for Ukraine, to join efforts and to overcome 
uh, this situation jointly because uh, Ukraine fights, as uh, Mr. Zelensky said, not only for uh, our land uh, and uh, for our freedom, but also for freedom of uh, Europe, for freedom of world. And it's not the only words, it's uh, reality. Putin will not stop will not stop with ukraine and uh, we we will uh, he, he will seek the blood and go ahead it's it's uh, the story that just repeated story with uh, georgia with moldova and uh, syria and now ukraine is uh, uh, let's say the uh, battle uh, between as i say ukraine and evil yes and so how do you stop him, uh, Alexander, because a lot of people have been saying to me in the last couple of days that if Russia decides to become um, more military, if you like, if they start to attack with even more weapons and with more soldiers, that, that they could do that if they wanted to. It's, it's one of the steps. And Ukraine uh, asked for the military support, as uh, I may just uh, remind you that Ukraine asked for the, uh, let's say, lethal weapon uh, since the last uh, of eight years. And uh, normally uh, Ukraine was refused uh, to, uh, for, for such a weapon. But now uh, it's one of the uh, factors that might uh, uh, add to um, stop the Russian aggression. A, uh, B, uh, political, diplomatic efforts uh, of all world and uh, collective measures for protection, at least protection the sky. We ask to shelter the sky of Ukraine because it's like uh, the uh, uh, straight way uh, to main uh, cities uh, in Ukraine. And uh, uh, on the field, Ukraine might uh, defend himself and uh, I crossed yesterday almost half of the territory of the country, and uh, I may assume you that Ukraine will resist uh, in every small village. It's true. It's true, and now we are ready for that with the even small weapon, and we need also the best weapon to be stronger in this battle. Yes. And are you encouraged by the movement by um, the European Union today um, to sanction yeah. uh, Putin's allies, some of his oligarchs. Similarly, um, the, the, the banking system closing down on, around here, Switzerland doing it as well. It's, it's a good way uh, and uh, better was for sure do it in, uh, in advance previously uh, to demonstrate the serious steps uh, of the European institution and the global institutions. But now uh, they, I made, uh, it's, it's my vision, they were urged to uh, go, uh, to open the uh, eyes and to react uh, in such a way. Uh, I, I expect that uh, it might play uh, its own role, but uh, uh, Putin, who is not Mr. For Me, uh, is uh, a crazy guy and uh, he doesn't consider uh, such obstacles on, on his way. And uh, as for me, he understands only force and uh, the force should be demonstrated also military force and combined as I said, diplomatic and uh, uh, um, uh, political uh, uh, force in pressure on, on uh, uh, Russia. And uh, I'm very, very um, grateful for uh, Mr. Boris Johnson, who is very active. 
he is leader in uh, one among the leaders in in this battle. He is, and uh, he's actually kind of uh, redeemed himself to some extent because uh, Boris Johnson, before all of this, as you probably know, was uh, was very unpopular in the country. But now uh, he's got some of that popularity back because of the way that he's been defending Ukraine and, and speaking up for them. Um, what are you making of the peace uh, talks which started yesterday? I don't know if they're still going on today. Is there any place where you guys could find a common ground with Russia or not really? I don't consider it seriously because Ukraine uh, has uh, the requirement a to start the conversation with uh, the stopping of the fire shuttling and uh, with uh, bringing back all military forces until uh, the uh, frontiers uh, in uh, Donetsk and Lugansk region uh, occupied in the last seven years and Crimea included. Mm. So it's the condition sine qua, sine qua non. Russia considers the, uh, let's say, the dictation of its position that Ukraine should be uh, uh, without weapon, uh, without resistance, and under Russia. So their position are totally different from Ukrainian, and I don't see that uh, here we may find something common. Yes, I think that's the difficulty, because there are some who think maybe Putin would be happy with um, annexing perhaps part of East Ukraine and then he leaves the rest of it alone. But I imagine you would not be happy with that. <laughs> of course. No, quite. Alexander, thank you very much indeed. We'll speak again, I'm sure. Uh, Alexander Pavlichenko, human rights activist there, reporting into us from Ukraine, uh, a place called Chernivsky, uh, which is not uh, a million miles from Kiev, uh, which is apparently now the focus, shall we say, of Russian um, advancement, where they're coming with um, a convoy of military vehicles, which is anywhere from 25 to 40 miles long, uh, depending on uh, which story you actually get from that part of the world. We'll bring you more, of course. We'll bring you uh, more of your calls as well. 0344 499 This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Smooth, strong and very long. Tell your ears to chew on this. We think what you say. Thoughtfling your thinking. The home of common sense. Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Somebody's actually put the Matt Hancock uh, video to music. You know, like that sort of uh, my my romantic story. It's really quite remarkable. Uh, as uh, as somebody who's just best mate has just tweeted me with it, he says uh, it's even worse with music. <laughs> it is quite remarkable. It's remarkably awful. Uh, is the problem there. Uh, but let's get some uh, phones uh, on the go. Uh, we're going to be speaking to some of you in a moment. 0344 499 1000. Right now, though, we're going to go back to Ukraine. Alona Shrukham uh, is here. She's a Ukrainian MP. Alona, very good uh, afternoon to you. Welcome. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbird styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Code SUPER24. 
Thanks very much for uh, for joining us. Um, how are you today? What's going on uh, in your world? Um, are you safe? What's uh, tell us what's happening? Uh, well, I am relatively safe in comparison to you know my fellow Ukrainians in Kharkiv, for example, the second biggest Ukrainian city with one in five million people who's been shelled and bombed, and uh, sixteen kids died yesterday because of that. So, in comparison, I'm relatively safe. I actually just came back from the shelter because we have had the bombing, uh, uh, well, evacuation and, you know, sounds and sirens starting from six o'clock in the morning, which just ended. And right now I think it's quite, quite calm. Yes. And of course, um, you will have seen President Zelensky talking to the European Union. Um, do you know whether or not anything has happened with regard to the application from um, uh, from Ukraine and from the government to join with the EU? Would that be something that could happen quickly? Uh, well, usually, yeah, usually, do, can you hear me? Yeah, because this is the sound could be bad. Yes. So usually I understand as a lawyer and I am a lawyer, or was a lawyer in my previous life. It will take a number of weeks, a number of months, a number of years. And for me, it's quite unbelievable that you can become a member of the EU, you know, in a week. But something unbelievable is happening right now in Ukraine and in Europe and in the world. And I never thought that in the 21st century, we will see, you know, Russians bombing our cities, children, kindergarten, uh, shelters, etc., etc. So yes, I think it's a good chance that another unbelievable thing will happen and that we will join the EU quite soon and quite fast. And yeah. at least I hope so. Right. And as far as the situation currently in Kiev is concerned, we're told there's a um, convoy of military vehicles moving towards Kiev. What do you, when, when do you anticipate they, the Russians will reach Kiev? Uh... Well, I think the Russians and Mr. Putin is getting very desperate. Uh, as an MP, we were gathered on the first day of war, which was five days ago, uh, almost six already. Mm. And we were told by our intelligence, by your intelligence, but everybody's intelligence, that the troops and tanks uh, would be in Kiev by the end of the first day. Mm. So by 6 p.m. on the first day, and the Kiev would be surrounded and the Kiev would capit capitulate, etc., etc. It didn't happen on the first day, it didn't happen on the second day, it didn't happen on the third. I'm sure it will not happen today and it will not happen tomorrow, it will not happen ever. But we do need the support, we do need more weapons, we do need even more sanctions. We need to close, you know, to cut off the swift uh, from all the other Russian banks, not just from the bunch that we have, we have seen already. And we do need a no-fly zone over Chernobyl, at least, because Kiev is quite close to Chernobyl, and Chernobyl was already hit by Russian weapons. If Chernobyl would be hit again, if there would be a fire, it would be a tragedy for Europe. It will not be just a tragedy for Ukraine. No, of course. Are you surprised, um, Alona, that the Russian forces have not been more brutal and have not been more efficient, if you like? Uh, no, I'm not surprised. Uh, well, because... Uh, uh, you know, I, I, I'm never surprised when the legends of big Russian army or legendary Putin or big Russia fail because I know that, you know, I know why they fail. I know it's a whole bunch of big propaganda and, and, and a lot of publicity over nothing, NPR. Uh, but yeah, there are, you know, anecdotes and jokes that we have surprised even ourselves in our defense of the country because we knew that we would defend the country. We didn't know that we are so good at that against the second biggest army in the world. Uh, our army turned out to be very professional, very well equipped, well, very patriotic, very motivated. And, you know, you see videos, which, which I see here, actually not on videos, but in real life, where the grandmothers have to help to stop the tanks and, you know, just uh, 
that people, uh, people do anything in the villages with no armory at all to stop tanks and to stop Russian forces. And basically the level of heroism we have seen, this is something that, yeah, we, I think we have surprised ourselves. Yes, I think so. And what's your uh, kind of analysis, if you like, Alona, of what is going to happen over the next few days and, and maybe even next week? Well, I, I, you know, I would never have imagined if you've asked me that question a week ago, I was actually in New York for the UN assembly. I would never imagine what had happened after that. I would never imagine that oh. the war would be such a big one and that we would have an invasion in Kiev, in Kharkiv, on all the major cities, on civil civilian population, on kindergartens, on hospitals, etc., etc. So I... I, I really don't know what to imagine anymore, mm. but what I am sure of is that Ukrainians will defend their land, uh, well, basically till the last drop. Uh, Ukrainians will not, uh, you know, flee, will not uh, sign any kind of uh, um, agreement which will take away our territories and we will protect our soil, we will protect our kids, we will protect our lives, because we know what we are fighting for. The Russian soldiers do not understand and do not know why they are there. And, and what are they doing here? And when we talk to them, they are saying that, you know, we were given an order just to come to Kiev. We were told that Zelensky is already gone and Zelensky is already not there. Mm -hmm. And the people of Ukraine will salute us. And obviously people do not salute somebody who's shoot, shooting us and killing us. So I'm sure that what is not going to happen, Ukraine will not lose and Ukraine will stay as an independent and very brave state. But we do need the help of the rest of the world, even stronger push than there has been. Okay. Well, Alona, stay safe. Thank you very much indeed. Alona Shakrum there, uh, Ukrainian MP, uh, reporting into us uh, from Kiev, um, where, of course, uh, we hear that the Russians are advancing. But she says, well, they said they were going to do that on day one and day two and day three. They're still not there. What's going on? Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.